Well, good morning. Great to be with you this morning as we jump into God's Word together. We're going to be in Esther chapter 4 this morning, and if you'd like to turn there and follow along. We've been going through a series in the book of Esther that we're calling Seeing the Unseen. And the reason for that title is because, as we've mentioned in past weeks, throughout the entire book of Esther, you will never once see the name of God mentioned. And yet, what has been abundantly clear, even through the first three chapters, is that his fingerprints are on every page. That even though his name is not explicitly stated, his presence and providence is clearly there. And so today we're going to be picking up in chapter 4 to give you a little context. Jason last week took us through chapter 3 and we ended with this decree that was introduced by Haman to the king and was sealed and sent out. A decree that would destroy all of the Jews that existed in that nation. And as this decree has been sent out, As news has spread now that this has taken place, we pick up in chapter 4, and here's what we read. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate For no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai. And take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go in to the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and all the peoples of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. 
For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Let's pray this morning. God, as we approach your word this morning, these words of Esther familiar to us, and yet, Lord, we also come trusting this morning that you have fresh and new revelation for us in your word. We approach it, Lord, understanding that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, with an ability to, to pierce into our soul, to divide the thoughts and intents of man. God, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would speak through your word to us, that you would soften our hearts where they are hard, that you would give us boldness where it is lacking, that you would fill us with your love and that you would send us from this place today with a call, with instruction, with correction as needed for your glory. We thank you for the freedoms we have to gather together, to read your word, to share in this fellowship this morning, God, we pray we would not waste it. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, if you're taking notes and you would like to write down a title, you can write down what you see on the screen there this morning, a deadly decision. As we begin Esther chapter 4, I just want to acknowledge something that is true for all of humanity, and that is that within all of us, deep down inside, we crave a life of significance. Every man, woman, and child that I've ever met on some level craves their life to have purpose and meaning, to matter. I've yet to meet the person who tells me their, their aspirations in life and their greatest goals are that they would be forgotten, insignificant, and unproductive. I haven't heard that. All the way from a, from a kindergarten graduation where all the little kids get to say what they want to be when they grow up, to those that have lived 90 to 100 years, each and every person on some level, and it differs between people, but we desire to have a life that matters. We want to make some kind of difference. But unfortunately for most of us, it stops right there with the desire 
an urge, a, a craving. It's an itch that never really gets stretched. It's a, a dream that never really is fulfilled. And that is due to the fact that any significance we might hope to make will always come through sacrifice. And although each and every one of us desire to live a significant life, not many of us are willing to go through the sacrifice it takes to lead a significant life. Often the way opportunity presents itself to us is through a problem. It's through an issue. It's through a wall that we come up against that we have to find a way over or through. But it is in these moments when a problem arises and sacrifice is called of you that we're given an opportunity to lead a significant life. It was G.K. Chesterton that once said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Well, today as we dive into our text, we're going to see Esther and Mordecai living out what will be the greatest shift in this entire book. Leading lives that nobody would argue are extremely significant and turn the tides of history. But those came through great sacrifice and those presented themselves with a great problem. A problem that is going to challenge them to the core as to what their part to play in history will be. And it's a problem that is going to bring forth three questions that internally they have to answer. Three questions that each one of us internally must answer for ourselves if we desire to lead a life of significance for the kingdom of God. And the first is this, where's the opportunity? Where's the opportunity? Realize that opportunity presents itself to each and every one of us on a daily basis. For many of us, multiple times throughout the day, opportunities arise before us. Now, as we've mentioned, often these come disguised as problems. Discouragements, difficulties that come in our path. But in this moment, we have that opportunity to avoid it or to engage with it. Where is your opportunity? Well, the opportunity for them came through a deadly decree that when Mordecai is presented with it and understands what this means for him as a Jew and his people living in this area, he responds. Well, how does he respond? We read that he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he begins to go throughout the city weeping and wailing with a bitter cry. Now, I understand this isn't a typical response in our culture today when we receive bad news like this. I doubt you've shown up at a friend's house to have them open the door with torn clothes, sackcloth, and ashes on their head. You don't see people at the grocery store walking around with some ash on their clothes, mourning a difficult problem in their life or the loss of a loved one. 
But let's take a moment to realize what this was and why in their culture they did this. Sackcloth and ashes were used as symbols of mourning, repentance, and grief. Sackcloth was an extremely coarse material, often made of of black goat's hair that was very uncomfortable to wear. And the ashes, they were meant to, to signify desolation and ruin, often like the remains of a burned city or a destroyed home after a battle. And when someone died, sackcloth was to be put on to demonstrate a heartfelt sorrow for the loss of that person. It was the refusal to be comfortable and act like everything was okay. And so there's a tearing of my comfortable clothes. There's a putting on of this uncomfortable, rough, and even itchy goat's hair and this ash upon my head. So without a doubt, nobody could see me and think, he's doing fine. Everyone would know you're not. Now, there's a number of reasons people would do this within Scripture and not just for the loss of a loved one. We see men and women in repentance who would also respond in this same way. They weren't willing to act like they were okay. They were innocent when they understood their guilt and the need for a change. They would repent and demonstrate that repentance through sackcloth and ashes and the tearing of their clothes. We see David doing this in the morning of the death of Abner, Saul's commander in 2 Samuel. We see Jacob do this when he thought his son Joseph had been killed by wild beasts. When Jonah declared to the people of Nineveh their coming destruction because of their wickedness, we read that all the people within that city, the king included, tore their clothes. They fasted. They put on sackcloth and ashes. And it's not the actual sackcloth and ashes that do something spiritual or possess anything within themselves, but they were used as an outward demonstration of an inward devastation. They were used to paint a picture for everyone around them of what was going on internally. That I am broken, and I am mourning, and I am in ruin over this. This thing that has taken place. But also more than just an appearance that Mordecai wanted to use to express what was going on internally, we also see his actions presenting his grief as well. That he cries out with a loud and bitter cry. This was more than just a show. This is what Luke 6.45 talks about when it says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And for anybody that's lost a loved one, that's truly been grieved with devastating news, You understand what it's like to not even have words in that moment, but just to let out a cry. Just a bitter cry when when you're at a loss for words, but out of the abundance of the grief within your heart, the mouth speaks and presents this noise. And this is the cry of Mordecai in this moment. As far as he is concerned, all hope is lost in this moment. The decree has been sent out. It can't be revoked. It's been sealed by the king. And it's not only sealing his fate, but Esther 
the niece that he has raised as his own, and all of his people throughout all of Shushan. And he refuses to ignore this. He is weeping bitterly through the streets with his clothes torn, ashes and sackcloth upon him. And in his wandering and his weeping, he comes all the way to the king's gate, but he goes no further. You see, culturally, in this time, in the presence of royalty, one was always expected to have a cheerful countenance. It expressed this idea that if you're in the presence of the king, the royalty, you should always be grateful. You are provided for. He's a great ruler, and so you could never be sad in his presence. And this was carried out to an extreme that it was actually grounds for execution if you were to enter his presence in a sad or angered state or with sackcloth and ashes upon you. Because this would be sending a message that he wasn't a good ruler, that he hasn't taken care of you, that somehow he's in the wrong with what he's doing. And so he stops at the gate. And how far is this from the king of kings that we serve? The one who invites us into his presence with our weariness and our heavy burdens that he might give us rest. Are you grateful today that you don't have to change your countenance before you go to the Lord in prayer? That you don't have to put on a smile, that you don't have to pretend everything's okay, that you don't have to clean up your act and get everything together and prepare yourself before you go to the Lord, that you can go in your weeping, you can go in your mess, and he welcomes you. In fact, he invites you in that place. We're told that God is near to the brokenhearted. We can be confident based on the authority of Scripture that this is true. And that God is not far off waiting for us to heal and recover before approaching him. No, he invites you as you are. Man, what a blessing for us today. And we're told that in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. This wasn't unique to Mordecai, that in every province where this decree went out, the response was the same by the Jews. And it's understandable. This is their execution that is going to be taking place. But even so, we recognize this is a culture very different than our own, much more expressive than our own. You'll read in the New Testament that there were actually paid mourners that would come to your house and mourn with you and weep with you when you lost a loved one. And yet I think it's important that we learn from the example set here by Mordecai and the Jews. You see, they did something with this problem that presented itself to them. The people mourned, the people weeped, the people responded with sackcloth and ashes and fasting. And then also Mordecai is going to come to Esther with a solution, with a plan. You see, they weren't content at leaving it where it was. They were going to do something about this opportunity that presented itself as a problem. They weren't content to give up and roll over. 
and lose hope. Now, why is this important and what can we learn from this? Well, there may not be a decree currently sent out for your execution, but there is a decree we've mentioned before that has been sent out into motion for the execution of the unborn. I've mentioned this before, Proposition 1 that's been put in place that if approved would make an allowance for abortions all the way up to full term, the day of a baby's birth. And not due to health complications either, that up to the day of that baby's birth, that mom could have a full right to terminate that baby, to murder her child for no other reason than it's inconvenient. I've chosen not to have this child, a fully developed baby. Even this week, I was speaking with Jason, and we were reflecting on our own children, both of mine that have been born early, multiple of his that have been born early, and the thought of my child, who was born perfectly healthy before their due date, being killed simply for the convenience of a mother, it's heartbreaking. And we're not, we're not being extreme with this proposition. In fact, I even went online this week and I read what the voter guide online has to say about the pros and cons of this proposition. And here's what it says for the con with this proposition. It says, Proposition 1 is an extreme law that allows late-term abortions at taxpayer expense up to the moment of birth even if the baby is healthy and the mother's health is not at all threatened. Current California law already guarantees a woman's right to choose, making this extreme and costly proposal unnecessary. Now, we already weep at the thought that this is still even a choice for a woman to make today. But the thought of taking this even further to the extreme of the day of that baby's birth should break our hearts. I mean, how does that hit you when you receive that news, when you hear of something like that that is being put forth to be passed? Does it even phase us? The reality that if it gets passed, babies all the way up to the day of their birth could be aborted. Thousands of lives that are valuable that God sees and knows and has fashioned and formed in their mother's wombs could be taken out without ever giving the opportunity to live? Do we care enough to weep over the millions of babies that were never given the chance to life? And do we care enough to see this problem as an opportunity for us to step up as the church and make a difference? And maybe for many of us, we hear that and it hits us, but then we're stuck in this space of what can I possibly do? You can pray. You can vote. You can make others aware. And you can stand for the truth. Mordecai in this moment is limited in what he can do. He's been presented with the problem, but he doesn't have an opportunity to go before the king and discuss this. But he's unwilling to sit back. Now he's going to go to Esther and he's going to petition to the one that does have an audience with the king so that she might do something about it. 
And this is just one example I'm bringing up of hundreds that are before us every single day. How do you respond when an opportunity arises? Now, I understand there are more problems that may arise in your day than you could possibly meet. And yet, when one approaches your door, when one comes before you, how do you respond with that opportunity? I've heard a lot of people over the years with the desire to be used by God until the problem arises until it calls them to some sort of sacrifice if they want to be a part of making a difference. But what if we were a people who so trusted in God and his control that we stepped up when others in our world backed down? And it brings us to the second question, the question that even if we don't see them verbally asking it, both Mordecai and Esther have to ask it internally, and that is, what's your ability? See, with every opportunity that approaches you, you have to ask the question, what can I do? And for every one of us, the answer is going to be different. You're in different places with different resources and giftings and opportunities, different callings on your life. But what is your ability, your God-given ability in the place he has you currently to make a difference and make an impact? It's like Paul asking the Lord when he's confronted, what would you have me to do? It's like the people at Pentecost who were cut to the heart at at Peter's message who say, what must we do? It's like Isaiah in the presence of God who says, send me, I'll go. The reality is your greatest ability to God is your availability. It's just being ready and willing to go where he tells you to go and do what he calls you to do. And you say, but I'm weak. So was Paul. Paul boasted in his weakness. Paul recognized that when I'm weak, he is strong. So this is not a disability. This is all the more an opportunity for God to use you for his glory. And what if you didn't have to solve the whole problem, but you could be used by God with what he's given you to be a part of the solution? That's why we're called the body of Christ. We all play a part. Maybe that's your time. You've got extra time that you can offer to the Lord. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your skill set. Maybe it's your insight and your wisdom. At minimum, for everyone in this room, it's your prayers. (laughs) Celebrated like a true person on the prayer team. Every one of us can pray. But often what I've found is that as you approach the throne room of grace and you pray before the Lord and you present this problem to him, not only does he call you to continue fervently praying, but he also calls you to get into action. What is your God-given ability? For Mordecai, his ability was to go before Esther and send a message. 
For Esther, her ability is going to be to go before the king and present this message. Hathak here is used by God as the messenger between these two, as the mediator from Esther and Mordecai. But all of them are using their God-given ability in the place and time he has them to be a part of the solution. Some of you God has in places where you get an audience with people in great authority and you can use that to speak the truth and make them aware. For others, you may never have that audience, but you may have insights into something going on that you can present to the people who present it to those people. And for others, you may feel like I don't have any of that, but you can be the messenger that relays the message between the two. How are we recognizing our God-given ability and stepping up to say, God, show me the opportunity and use me as a part of your plan? Because each and every one of these people in our story are used in an incredible way for the salvation of these Jews, for the turning of the tides of the whole book of Esther. And all of them played a significant part. Well, when Esther's brought to the attention of the fact that Mordecai is at the gate. His clothes are torn, he's in sackcloth and ashes, and he's weeping bitterly. We read that she was deeply distressed, and rightly so. This is the man who raised her. This is her father in many ways. And she hears that he's mourning and he's weeping, and she's distressed, not even knowing yet what it is he's mourning and weeping about. But she sends garments to clothe him and to take his, his sackcloth and ashes from him, but he would not accept them. Now this act of Esther, to send clothes to him, to have his sackcloth and ashes removed, was an act of compassion. This isn't an attempt to dismiss his grief. This was a custom of the Persians to send new and fresh garments to those who were mourning the loss of a loved one, that they might be comforted and find healing to move forward. It was acknowledging their grief, but it was also saying, I'm here to help you move on. I'm here to help you move forward. I'm here to help in this time of difficulty. But we read that Mordecai would not accept them, unwilling to accept clean and fresh clothes and put off his sackcloth and ashes. It's because new clothes could not remove this condemning decree. He needed a solution only the king could bring. He needed more than comfort. He needed salvation from the impending doom that this decree had brought. I wonder when when an issue is brought before us and we get to that place of mourning over it, being discouraged by it, seeking the Lord for a solution to it, do we allow ourselves to simply be comforted by fresh clothes and new garments and and move past it. You know, we, we live in a day and age with technology where you're presented with hundreds of problems every single morning on the news or at your fingertips. And it can become very easy for us in our culture to just move right past it, sweep right along. A problem is presented and then we just kind of flip the channel and I'm just gonna watch the game and we find something to just kind of cover over it and move on. How often have there been things happening on a global scale where we hear about a war, where we hear about devastation that's taken place because of a natural disaster, 
where we hear about something that's at our front door like Proposition 1, and in a moment we're in outrage and we've got to do something about this, and the very next day we've all but forgotten about it. We've moved on. We've removed our sackcloth and ashes. We've allowed ourselves to be comforted with the pleasures and distractions around us, and we've done nothing about it. Well, in this moment, Mordecai is unwilling to be comforted until there's a true solution to the problem. He's unwilling to say, well, you know, I weeped over it, I fasted, I cried out, I did what I could. No, he's, he's unwilling to stop there. Something has to be done. And so she sends a messenger to hear what is taking place. What is this thing that's going on that you refuse to be comforted from? And he tells her all that's taken place. He sends a copy of the decree to Esther so that she can see it for herself. And he sends with this man a command to her. To make supplication to him and plead before the king for her people. This is Mordecai's solution to the problem at hand. Esther, you need to go before the king and you need to let him know what's going on. You need to reveal yourself as a Jew. You need to make him aware of what this decree would do to you and your whole family and all the other Jews. Esther, the mediator. Both Jewish and Persian royalty. She was the perfect representative She alone has an ear with the king and a unique ability to bring this request before him. But once again, we can't overlook the faithfulness of this messenger, Hathak. Truly one in a million to find a man that's so faithful to return back and forth and present this message with such accuracy. To find a man that's so faithful, it's like finding a needle in a Hathak. No, no, that's just, <laughs> that's as good as it gets today, okay? I'm sorry, that's, I know, it's, it's rough around here. But this, this messenger that's faithful to present this to Esther and say, here's what he's commanding you to do. The queen of Persia, Mordecai, is saying, you need to go before the king and you need to present this to him. And not only Present it to him, but you need to plea for your people. You need to beg for a solution that he would stop this somehow. And it immediately hits her, and she's brought up to the third question every one of us has to ask ourselves if we want to live a significant life for the Lord. What's the price you're willing to pay? I already mentioned if you want to lead a significant life, it's going to call you to sacrifice. In this moment, as Mordecai presents this before Esther, she has to ask herself the question, what's the price I'm willing to pay? She recognizes nobody just walks in before the king. And this was by design because of assassination attempts. They don't just let anybody wander into the king's presence. He doesn't have an open door policy where anybody off the street can just wander in there. No, you went before the king if he invited you to come before him. 
And she acknowledges, I haven't even seen him in 30 days. It's been a month without seeing him. We're not talking on a daily basis right now. And now you just want me to show up unannounced before him. My life's on the line, Mordecai, if I do that. No, 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 no. Find another solution that doesn't require so much sacrifice of me. Can anybody relate this morning? You pray before the Lord, burdened with a problem that is before you, and then when a solution presents itself, we say, no, 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 no. Lord, that requires way too much of me. That, would, that could cost me my reputation. That could cost me my job. That could cost me my friends and my family. That could cost me my life. No, Lord, show me another solution that requires less sacrifice. Esther's at that place right now. Show me another way. What is Mordecai's response to her when she shares this? Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And that line we all know Esther's famous for. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. She begs for another solution that doesn't require so much sacrifice. And Mordecai says, no, 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 no. Don't think for a moment because you're in the palace that you get to escape this. What a good word for us when we hear of problems arising around the world. In many ways, we're like Esther in the comfort of a palace with safety and freedoms that many other believers all around the world don't experience. And how easy is it for us to hear of a problem, understand the sacrifice it would take of us to go and be a part of the solution, and so we go, ah, he's going to have to send someone else. Man, may we heed the words of Mordecai. Don't think that you can just avoid this and remain silent. It's your problem too. Don't think this doesn't involve you. And how often have we fallen into the trap? I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm living a good life. So those things over there, they're really not my problem. I'm good with the king. I'm in the kingdom. I'm just going to keep doing my own thing. Mordecai makes two things very clear to Esther in this moment. This critical moment where she's on the fence with what decision she will make. He says, you can't escape this. And in trying to do so, you will miss your opportunity to make a difference in it. He says, you're not going to escape this, Esther. Don't be so foolish to think this doesn't affect you as well as a Jew. Now he recognizes, and many say this is the closest you get to a reference to God. And to faith in God is that Mordecai recognizes if you don't speak up and do something, deliverance will still come from another place. God's not going to allow the Jews to be wiped out. These are his people. Deliverance is going to come, but we'll perish. And it's going to come through someone else. 
Dr. James Emery White, a pastor in Virginia, here's what he had to say. If you lead a safe life, you will never lead a significant life. Mordecai pushes back on Esther and says, you can't escape this. You, in the place you are at, for such a time as this, have an opportunity to be used by God to bring deliverance to his people. For such a time as this, look at everything that's happened, Esther. This wasn't by coincidence. The fact that you were chosen by the king and placed in this position Even the fact that Mordecai was placed where he was to make aware to the king an assassination attempt on his life, all of this is being used by God. And each and every one of us in the building today, God has brought you where you are today for such a time as this. The influence you have, the people around you, the giftings he's given you, and even the location and time in which you live is not a mistake. I've heard many people say that they wish they were brought up in a different home. Oh, I wish I had a different upbringing. I wish I lived in a different time. Man, our world today, I wish I could have lived 500 years ago. I've heard people say they wish that they could live somewhere else or do something else or be somewhere else, and yet God has you here and now for such a time as this with a purpose and a calling on your life. Esther is not unique in this. Mordecai plays a part in this. Hathak plays a part in this. Each and every one of these pieces is a part of God's grand plan. And we today are no different. You're no accident where you are and how God has you currently. Don't make excuses for it. Look for the opportunities within it to be used by God. And be willing to ask yourself the question, what's the price I'm willing to pay? Jesus called his disciples to count the cost. Paul acknowledged that daily he died to himself. Because that's the decision before Esther right now. Mordecai makes it very clear to her, you're scared of going before the king and dying, but realize if you don't go before the king, you're going to die. There's no escaping this. But you've been placed in this position at this time for this moment so that you might go before him and present what may be our only opportunity to be spared. And what was Esther's response? She says, go, Mordecai. Gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, day or night. My maids and I, we will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Esther makes her decision. The opportunity presents itself. She understands her unique ability in this moment. She counts the cost and she says, okay, I'll go. Fast for me for three days. And I'm going to go before the king. I'm going to break the law. I'm going to put my life on the line 
And if I die, I die. But I'm going to die trying to be obedient. Matthew 10, 28 tells us not to fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Paul, a man who was well acquainted with suffering and making decisions that put his life on the line, said in Philippians 1.21 that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a man who has counted the cost and makes every decision in light of that. Hey, death is not the end. And I'm not going to allow fear of death to stop me from being obedient today with what God's calling me to do. And so Esther concludes, I'm going to go before the king. And the only way I'm going to be spared is if he extends out his golden scepter, which approves and allows me to come before him, which stops the execution on my life. If you highlight in your Bible, I hope that's highlighted. If you underline, please underline that because when we come to that, you're going to see not only the significance of that for her, but the gospel message within that fact for all of us and the way that this authority brings life where death was coming. But I want to tell you the story of another man, a monk actually, who also counted the cost and and paid the ultimate price to lead a significant life. Saint Telemachus. I don't know if you've heard of Saint Telemachus, but my hope is after today you'd never forget him. Saint Telemachus is credited with single-handedly putting a stop to the gladiator games that existed in Rome. Those gruesome, violent games where men were killed for others' entertainment in the Colosseum. But what cost did it cost him? Well, this monk who is described as being a rather small fellow, as he was seeking the Lord and praying in isolation, felt the call of God to go to Rome. And upon arriving in Rome, he was drawn by the crowds that were all heading towards this massive Colosseum. And so he followed them there and upon sitting inside the Colosseum and seeing these men go out into the, the stadium and then seeing them draw their weapons and begin to fight and brutally kill each other, he was struck to the heart in this moment. And in this moment, he saw his opportunity from the Lord and he began to ask himself the very question what can I possibly do? He did the only thing he could. And he ran down and sprinted all the way to the bottom, jumped inside of that arena, and began to run between the gladiators, telling them to stop. Well, at first, anybody in the stands is just thinking this must be a part of the show. But as they quickly see him beginning to bring a stop to the people fighting, they're beginning to get annoyed, even outraged. They came for entertainment. They want to see men killed. They want blood spilled before them. And so they begin to shout out to stop this man. And historians tell us that they begin to make a rain of stones onto that arena until they had stoned this man to death. Other men note that the way he had finally been killed is that they just begin to yell and cry out for the gladiators to run him through until one of them finally answered the cry. But whatever the cause of his death, he lay in that arena on the floor, 
And in that moment, they say there was just a silence that began to take over the entire place. It was as if God used this one small monk in this moment to just open the eyes of everybody within the Colosseum and make an awareness to them of what they were actually doing. And then they begin to leave that place and never again did a gladiator games ever take place within the Colosseum. At the cost of his own life, the gladiator games were ended to never take place. A man who heard a call from the Lord and said, all right, I'm going to go. A man who in a moment is presented with a problem that many of us would look at and say, how can we possibly fix this? What could we possibly do in this moment? And yet this one small monk feels the call of the Lord to just do something. And so he moves with purpose and he counts the cost and he jumps into that arena with no weapon and no plan except at the cost of his own life to stop this brutal bloodshed of so many lives. And at the cost of his life, he does so. What is the Lord asking you to do? I'm sure it might not feel as extreme as jumping into the arena with gladiators. And yet at moments, it may feel like it's going to cost you everything you have. Realize that the world around you has been given the same deadly decree that the Jews were given in Shushan. That there is a law that God has put in motion that requires that we give our lives to Jesus, receive his sacrifice for our sins, or we face eternal damnation. Separation from God for eternity. What are we doing with that message? Do we weep over those who don't know the truth? Do we weep over those that this is going to affect? Do we look for opportunity to jump in and make a difference? And are we willing to be a faithful messenger like Mordecai, like Hathak, like Esther, in whatever opportunity God gives us to be a part of the solution? Because thinking you can avoid it is foolish. You cannot avoid it and you will miss your opportunity and blessing to be used by God as a part of the solution. And just as Mordecai said, make no mistake, God will bring deliverance, but it will be through another place. As I invite the worship team to come back up this morning, we're going to spend some time in worship. We're going to have people available around the room for prayer. And I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you really, to allow the Lord to speak to you even in this moment. To reveal those things to you that maybe you've been ignoring, that maybe you've been unaware of, of where there's a problem, but he wants you to be a part of the solution. That you might allow the Lord to use the ability he's given you to be a part of that solution. And you count the cost 
Present yourself as a living sacrifice before the Lord this morning. And then go out there and be willing to be a part of making a difference. You can't solve everything, but you can be a part of solving something. And maybe it's putting a stop to Proposition 1. Maybe it's helping someone on the street. Maybe it's going overseas and sharing the gospel. Maybe it's encouraging someone within your family. Whatever it may be, though, may we be a people who count the cost, present ourselves to the Lord, and are found faithful and obedient to be a part of the solution. I want to close with this final verse and then in prayer. And it says in Matthew 10, 38 and 39, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. It was in a moment where Esther was willing to say, If I perish, I perish but I'm going to be obedient and use the opportunity I've been given to serve the Lord, that God would bring life through death. And it's when we get up each and every morning and we deny ourselves and we take up our cross and we follow Jesus and say, I am dead to myself, I am alive in Christ. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that we would go out there and say, God, use my life. Pour it out for your glory. Use me as a part of the solution, whatever the cost may be. And you watch as you present your body a living sacrifice, as you die to yourself and live for him. Watch the life that he will bring through that kind of sacrifice and service for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we are reminded of this bold act of Esther and Mordecai to do something about the problem that existed, recognizing your providence and placing them for such a time as this. God, the way you used them in a mighty way to turn the tides of this story Lord, we recognize clearly this morning who the hero is, and it's not Esther or Mordecai, it is you. You are the God who is faithful to redeem and restore and save that which was lost. They were just men and women who were obedient and willing. And God, this morning we look to you the same. Lord, we do not need a man to save us, we need you. Lord, we don't just need our abilities and our willingness. We need your Spirit's power and guidance. Lord, we're reminded that it's not by might nor by power, but it is by your Spirit. And so, Lord, this morning we present our bodies a living sacrifice. Lord, we present ourselves as empty vessels to be filled by you, but Lord, we ask and pray that you would do just that. Fill us with you. We desire to decrease. We want you to increase. God, we've been crucified with Christ. 
These lives we present, they are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We want to glorify you with our bodies. Reveal to us this morning where that is, how that is, what part we play in that. And may we be faithful to count the cost and step out in faith. We thank you, Lord, that you are in control. And we pray, God, that you would use us as a part of your plan today for your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as we worship with a few more songs? And once again, I invite you, if you need prayer for anything, there are people who would love to pray with you. If you've never made the decision to give your life to Jesus, first and foremost, let's make that decision today. Please come and talk with one of us. We'd love to pray with you and make that decision this morning. But let's worship the Lord together. Let's allow him to speak and reveal within our hearts what he's calling us to do. And may we leave here today on mission for Christ.